Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 30 this morning. We have just been singing about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died upon that cross, he rose again uh, to give us victory. But as we walk through life, it doesn't always feel like victory, does it? It can feel like trials. Last fall, I planned to bring a series of messages on Joseph. Little did I know how relevant his life would be to ours. We are going to discover more than a dozen life lessons that will help you navigate in 2020 and beyond. The story of Joseph is incredible. It is a story of integrity and isolation. It's a story of slavery and freedom. It's a story of temptation and trauma, of lies and love. But ultimately, the story of Joseph is a story of faith and forgiveness. From the life of Joseph, we will learn how to deal with fam difficult family members. Now, if you have one of those, would you raise your... No, no. <laughs> how to deal with difficult family members. We're going to learn how to deal with those moments when we are mistreated. We're going to learn how to handle pain and disappointment and discouragement. I mean, Joseph is going to teach us how to respond to sexual temptation. He's going to show us what to do uh, when people break their promises to us. Joseph will show us how to trust in God when we think God is silent, even if it goes on for many years. So, if you've ever been abused or victimized or neglected or wronged, or you know someone who has, which is everyone, then Joseph is your man. Joseph is your man to learn from. Uh, Joseph also shows us how to handle success. You see in your notes there that real integrity can withstand both adversity and prosperity. So would you please stand with me as I read from Genesis chapter 30, Joseph. My message is entitled, Meet Joseph's Family. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her, and opened her womb, and she conceived and bare a son, and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. May we pray. Our Father, I, I ask now that during these weeks and few months together with jo Joseph, that you will help each one of us to apply the biblical truths and principles and lessons that we learn and are reminded of. God, help, help us to apply them to our hearts and lives so that our relationships with family and friends and coworkers and lost people and difficult people, that we can have a spiritual impact upon them, seeing people saved, uh, seeing us do our part to admonish, encourage, and help people love you more. Help us to define true greatness as loving God and loving others. And may we be, may we be a Joseph. 
I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you know, Joseph had a big family, actually had a very big family, 11 brothers and one sister. Now, there are some pros and cons of big families. If you grew up in a big family, would you raise your hand? Okay. Uh, how big is big, Mrs. Cooper? 12. That's big. <laughs> All right. Anybody else grow up in a family of 12? 14. Who said that? Brother Robinson, 14? Pastor Joyner's got 10? Nine? All right. Big families. Big families. Uh, it was Steve and I, so that, that's, you know, two of us constituted a big family, if you knew what we were like. All right. He had a really big family. Now, there's some pros and cons of big families. What are the benefits? Well, sociologists say that kids with a lot of brothers and sisters, they learn how to get along. Uh, they learn how to share. They have no choice. They learn healthy compromise. They learn better social skills and are happier. They are less likely to divorce. They don't need super nanny's advice. Right? Uh, what are the negatives? Well, other experts say, oh, large families aren't good. They may, may produce more delinquents and alcoholics. Uh, and you may have lower academic test scores. Now, the truth is there are famous people from large families, and there are famous people from small families. Let me share a couple of those with you. Uh, George Washington was one of ten. William Shakespeare was one of eight. Let's go to the next slide. I think I got a picture of them. John F. Kennedy was one of nine. Beethoven was one of eight. Thomas Jefferson was one of ten. Ben Franklin, he was one of 17. <laughs> 17. Zig Ziglar was one of 12. Was the uh, greatest salesman in the country, then became a Christian and became a Christian motivational speaker. You may have heard of the Bates family, a Christian family in Tennessee. 19 kids. That is a lot of kids. Unless you compare it to Zionus in India with 39 wives and 94 kids. Okay, they win. <laughs> Genesis Book of World Records says the Zionists have the most number of kids in the world today, 94. But the story of Joseph is more than a story about a teenager from a large family. It's a story about God ruling in the affairs of mankind. Now in business... The 30,000-foot view is a way to describe getting high enough to see the big picture. And that's what God sees all the time. God is weaving the circumstances of our lives and of the world to accomplish his ultimate plan for human history. Now, what can you see if you are 30,000-foot uh, feet high what, at that level. What you can see, you can look down, you can see the interrelatedness and the interconnectedness of streams flowing into rivers. You can see roads, meandering country roads uh, joining into highways. Now for God, for God, he oversees events and people, allowing them to intersect to accomplish one purpose, which for you and for me and every person in the world is the glory of God. Uh, and he can do that without 
violating your free will. As you exercise your free will, good or bad, God is able to take it and bring it to accomplish his amazing will. Now let me show you what the puzzle looks like when it is all put together from God's eyes. Big picture. Big picture. Prophecy fulfilled. Genesis 3.15, God predicted a redeemer would come. In Genesis 7, uh, God provided an ark, a picture of Christ, providing salvation to all who believe. Genesis 12, God chose Abraham uh, to become the father of the Jewish people, the chosen people. Genesis 49.10, Shiloh will come through the tribe of Judah. Shiloh means peace. Christ is our king. Christ is our priest. Christ is our lawgiver. Christ was perfect. Don Lemon was wrong on CNN again when he said Jesus Christ was not perfect. Jesus is perfect. Big picture, prophecy fulfilled. Big picture, salvation purchased. But he did not just come to be a good example to follow, he came to die for our sins. You see, I got a problem. I'm a sinner. You got a problem. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness. You cannot go to heaven with even one sin on your soul. You need to be forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away all of our sin. Big picture, victory won. The proof that Jesus Christ is the Savior is the empty tomb. He arose victoriously over death, and because he lives, we too shall live forever. Easter is not once a year. Easter is every Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday, and the events in the life of Joseph are puzzle pieces to get Jesus to earth to fulfill prophecy, to purchase our salvation, to give us the victory of heaven. But now let me show you what the events of Joseph's life looked to him for about two decades. A messed up puzzle. Dysfunctional family. Drama. Tension. Jealousy. Angry brothers. Hatred. Slavery. Temptation. False accusations. Imprisonment mistreatment yikes may i just say to you that faith in god will help you be calm faith in god will help you be calm i don't know what you're going to hear in the news this week but i can tell you this faith in god will calm your spirit faith in god will bring peace to your soul a faith in god will allow you to have the joy of the lord no matter what the circumstances of your life are so it will, it will take great faith to, to believe that god is sovereign over your life but he is it will take great faith to believe that he is working in your life on a massive scale of planning yes for you and oversight but he is it'll take great faith and when you see it happen, may I say great awe to see God work out the thousand little details as he knits together a seamless, beautiful picture of his glory. And so I love the way the songwriter put it to words. All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim 
and you just don't see him, remember you're never alone because God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Trust his heart. He sees the master plan, and he holds our future in his hand. So don't live as those who have no hope. All our hope is found in him. What a great song. What a great song. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. James 1, 5. I am sure that Joseph prayed not hundreds of times, but thousands of times as he went through his trials, and we can too. So let's take a, a quick peek of an overview of Joseph's life. It can be neatly divided into three periods, and we'll go to that slide now. Uh, the beloved son is zero to 17 years, and that's characterized by, by tension, by jealousy, by anger. The second period is the period of enslavement, and that's from age 17 to age 30, slave, prisoner, and then as ruler in Egypt, 30 to 110 years, second on the throne under Pharaoh. And so the life of Joseph is riches to rags uh, to riches story again. So let's meet Joseph's family. Like every family tree, there are some gnarled branches, but Joseph's ancestors are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all three of those are in the Hebrews' hall of faith, Hebrews 11. So let's meet Abraham. Abraham is the friend of God. Uh, God promised to bless Abraham. God promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is Joseph's great-grandfather. Now, Abraham died before Joseph was born. He never met him. But I'm sure he heard a lot of stories about great-grandpa and his faith. And now his son was Isaac. Isaac is the quiet patriarch. This is Joseph's uh, grandfather. Abraham sent his servant Eleazar, who was the manager, manager over all of Abraham's flocks and wealth, uh, to secure a bride for Isaac. And he did. He returned with Rebekah. Uh, this is where we begin now to see sinful attitudes coming to the surface. God blessed, God blessed Isaac and Rebekah with fraternal twins. Who are they? Esau and Jacob. And now we see blatant favoritism. And Isaac loved who? Esau. He loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, Genesis 25, 28. You know that favoritism usually produces bitterness and upset and anger. God loves all of his children equally. And so beware and now watch where this favoritism goes. Favoritism. Favoritism. The only, one, the only ones that say it doesn't exist are the ones getting it. <laughs> Is that a great picture or what? <laughs> say, ah, it doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. It does. It did in Genesis. As an old man, Isaac could barely see. It was time to bestow the blessing on the firstborn. 
So Isaac calls his favorite son Esau, and he asked him to prepare a tasty meal of venison. And while he is out, Rebekah convinced her favorite son uh, to be able to pretend to be Esau and deceive his father. The plan worked. Jacob stole the blessing. When Esau returned, Isaac told him that, that, uh, uh, that Jacob tricked him. Genesis 27, 36. And Esau said, is not he rightly named Jacob, trickster? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, behold, he has taken away my blessing. Verse 41, Esau hated his brother and said, I will slay my brother. Sounds like Cain and Abel. I will slay my brother. So what's this difference between birthright and blessing? And your notes there, the birthright is the honor given to the firstborn to become, quote, the head of the household and the right to inherit the father's estate. Upon the death of his father, he was to receive a double portion, that is, twice as much of the inheritance as the other brothers. You say, well, why, why, why? It was his responsibility to care for his mother. It is his responsibility to care for the unmarried sisters. And then the blessing, the blessing is the formal act of the acknowledgement of the firstborn as, uh, as the heir and asking God to give the material blessings so that he would have the wealth to care for the family and identifying him as the authority in the family. Jacob got both of them. Genesis 25, 23, God told Rebekah when she was expecting that the, the older shall serve the younger. And so here's what happened. Esau despised his birthright, according to Hebrews. He didn't care about spiritual things. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about family responsibilities. Esau even married an unbelieving wife, a grief to his parents. Jacob was industrious. He, was, he legally bought the birthright for what? A bowl of soup, a bowl of lentils. But Jacob deceived his father for the blessing. You see, God works through the free choices of his people, good or bad. God not only gave the blessing to Jacob, but he also became the heir to the promises of Abraham. But God did not stop the consequences. And so he had to flee to his uncle's home, Uncle Laban, for 20 years, and he never saw his mother again. Now, the name Jacob means trickster. As the second-born twin, do you know the story? As the second-born twin, when he was born, he was actually holding on to what? He's holding on to the heel of his baby brother Esau as if to pull him back into the womb so he could be first. What a picture. What a picture. Now someone is going to treat him the same way. And so he goes to his uncle, he sees his beautiful cousin, he gives her a smooch, and he says to his uncle, I want to marry that woman. And so he says, you worked for me for seven years. And he worked for seven years. And so uh, in the darkness of the evening, and, and as the customs were with the, the bride's veil covering her face, he wakes up in the morning, and it's not Rachel. You talk about the ultimate surprise. Surprise! <laughs> it's Leah! And so he goes to his father-in-law and said, you have deceived me. Ha, ha, ha. You reap what you sow. And he said, well, it's not so. It's our custom that the older daughter would be married first and fulfill the marriage week. And, and you can marry Rachel, my second daughter, but you've got to work for me for seven more years. And so that is exactly 
what happened, and then six years for the flocks. So that brings us to the family feud. The family feud, the conflicts and trials of Jacob's family, Genesis 29 and 30. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. He loved Rachel more than, than Leah. Uh, the result, a rivalry that led to a childbearing competition, Genesis 29, 30. It involved two handmaids. If you do the math, you got one husband, you got two wives, you got two handmaids, you got four mothers, you got 12 sons and one daughter, adding up to jealousy and anger and lies. Here's what happened. Jacob secretly returns to Canaan without telling his father-in-law Laban. Rachel stole her father's idols. Jacob wrestled with an angel and was crippled by him. Changed his name to Israel. Daughter Dinah wanders away from the home and is treated like a harlot. Jacob hears the story and does nothing. Simeon and Levi, they kill every man in the village that violated their sister. Uh, Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin. Jacob loves Joseph more than all of his sons. And so turn with me to chapter 37, Genesis 37. Now we need to understand all of that. We need to understand all that family background if you want to know Joseph. And so that brings us to the question of why do Joseph's brothers hate him? Well, Joseph is the favored son. Why is he the favored son? Because he is the son of the favored wife. That's chapter 30, verse 4. Joseph was given a place of leadership over his older brothers, chapter 37 uh, and in verse 2. Jacob gave Joseph a coat of what? Many colors. Let's look at that. Genesis 37, 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he, he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. This not only identified Joseph as the favored son, I mean, it's an outward sign and every time the brothers looked at Joseph, they saw what he had on and it just reminded them that, that they were not as important to dad as he was. It was a sign of his singular affection to him. But scholars also believe that the robe had long sleeves and the robe had a hem that went all the way down to his ankles. What does that mean? That's something that royalty would wear. Those aren't work clothes. So he didn't work like the brothers. What was his job? Well, his job was to report on the brothers' bad behavior. That's his job. He is a snitch on his brothers. And they hated him the more. Joseph's ten older brothers, they always spoke angrily to him. Look at chapter 37, verse 4. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably unto him. They spake angrily to him. And then, to top it all off, Joseph shares these outrageous dreams that he would rule over them. And so now we understand why on that day when Joseph found his brothers 63 miles away from home, that it was time to rid him of their family. And they devised a plot to kill him. Okay, let's stop here. Let's... Let's see some of the many applications. 
May I just say that small sins lead to big problems. Small sins lead to big problems. And the first sin is that of deception. God is a God of truth. Lying is extremely common among family and co-workers and friends. And it's a grievous sin against God and others. When someone lies, they break trust. When someone lies, they're hiding their motives and their actions so they can look good to others or they're trying to hide their sin. Lying is an awful sin. It's an awful sin. God is a God of truth and his people are to speak truth. You know, today is a good day to make a vow that I will always tell the truth. I will always tell the truth. Small sins lead to big problems. Favoritism. Uh, you see with Isaac and Rebekah, you see it again with Jacob. God is our example. He loves all of us equally. I remember a discussion between a couple of families. Uh, one had three young children under the age of five. five. Another one had uh, just a toddler and were expecting their second. And as the conversation went, the question was, how in the world can I love this second child as much as I love the first child. And the older, wiser parents that have been parents for, you know, two years longer, uh, they said, well, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you, when that baby is born, God is going to grow your heart with a greater love. And you're going to love them equally. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, but when you add sin, that messes things up. God loves all of us equally as if we were his favorite. But he loves us all equally. Favoritism is condemned in the church, James chapter 2. You know, right now, and there's just a few of us here today, maybe, you know, maybe 130, 140. Uh, but God, God condemns favoritism in the church. We are not to like or dislike people because of favoritism. We're not to like or dislike people because, because of money. We're not to like or dislike people because of their race. We're not to like or dislike people because of their upbringing. We're not to like or dislike people because of their preferences in entertainment or music or because they wear a mask or they don't wear a mask during a pandemic. Today is a good day to repent of favoritism. Repent of favoritism. Resentment is another sin. James chapter 4, verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, if you judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. James chapter 4, verse 11. You know what God goes on to say to us next in verse 12? There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. That's heaven or hell. One lawgiver who's able to save or destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? You know what James is saying? He's saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're God? Certainly not. Stop resenting. Resenting is a sin. And this is what's in the heart of the brothers. Stop judging your brothers or your sisters. Now, again, we're making an application here. There's a lot of resentment and evil speaking going on in our country. There's a lot of evil speaking and resentment going on in Pennsylvania. 
There's a lot of evil speaking and resentment going on on the internet and social media and Facebook and Instagram. And people say, Pastor, did you see? Did you read? I said, no, I didn't. I didn't. But they tell me it's going on. I want to remind everyone that we are going to give an account for every single word that we speak or write or post. We're going to give an account for every single word on the day of judgment to God. I have one word of godly advice. Refrain. Is that good? Refrain. It means stop yourself. Stop yourself. Today is a good day to give your tongue and your social media to Jesus Christ. Give your tongue and your social media to Jesus Christ. Small sins lead to big problems. Deception, favoritism, resentment. Here's one, unforgiveness. The ten brothers viewed Joseph. They, they were justified themselves. I mean, this, is, th this little brother is a spoiled, rotten brat with an overfed ego. That's how they looked at him. But you know, the Bible never ascribes pride to Joseph. We are not told why he felt the need to tell them the dreams. I mean, if he went to counseling, the counselor would have said, oh, you should probably keep that dream to yourself. <laughs> I don't think you should share that. Maybe he believed the dreams were from God, and maybe he believed that he was supposed to share them. But whatever his motive was, and we don't know, whatever his motive was, he is pouring gasoline on the fire of their hatred. And they refuse to forgive what they thought was mistreatment against them. Isn't that interesting? When you got two people that are upset, they both feel like they've been mistreated by the other person. A man came to his pastor and said, my wife and I get into these huge arguments and they go on and on and she becomes historical. The pastor said, you mean hysterical. He said, no, I mean historical. Uh, she brings up every bad thing I've ever done, every offense, and she just brings it up. Historical. Unforgiveness. Now, if you don't get anything out of the message, I want you to walk away with this. In life, forgivers win, unforgivers lose. That's it. In life, forgivers win, unforgivers lose. You say, yeah, you don't know what they've done. But I do know what they did to Corey Tenboom. And I do know what you've been through is a whole lot less than what she went through. And I do know that when that soldier that mistreated them and caused her sister's death puts his hands out at a church and said, Sister, will you forgive me? And she said, There's no way I can forgive this man. This is a man that I hate in my flesh. And in that moment, the Spirit of God from head to toe rushed over her soul and she put her hand out and said, Brother, I forgive you. Now, if Joseph can do it, and Corey Tenboom can do it, you can do it too. You can. Well, okay, you can't, but God can, and God can through you. In life, forgivers win, unforgivers lose. Today is a good day to forgive someone that you are holding a grudge against. Small sins lead to big problems, deception and favoritism, resentment, unforgiveness. One more, neglectful parenting. Neglectful parenting. 
Jacob did not respond properly when his kids sinned. Reuben, I won't tell you about that sin. Dinah, Simeon, Levi. Oh, he got mad. And sometimes he got very mad, but he didn't act righteously. We have parenting classes every fall and have for about 34 years. As a parent, I, I can't imagine going a whole year without not going to parenting classes. I can't imagine not reading a Christian book on parenting. I can't imagine without Jody and I not listening to uh, parenting sermons and podcasts. If you're a mom or a dad, then you have a responsibility not to be like Jacob, not to be a passive, neglectful, angry, or we can go the other way, overprotective parent. Parents, you need lots of wisdom because life has never been more complicated in the history of world in the history of the world than right now and if you want to just rely on your own wisdom you're making a huge mistake and your children will suffer well you've met the family you know it'd be an understatement just just to say oh yeah joseph grew up in a blended family <laughs> no it, it goes way beyond that he grew up in a family filled with drama and tension and dysfunction and favoritism and jealousy and upset and lying, just a few of the words to describe the family. Problem after problem after problem. But here, here's the good news. But Joseph believed in God's sovereignty in his life. No wonder we can all relate to Joseph on so many different levels. Joseph didn't just survive. Joseph thrived. How? Here's how. Because of his theology. Theology is the study of God. Because of what he believed about God, he believed God was sovereign in his life. And you got to believe that too, because it's true. It's true. God is sovereign in your life. Remember the puzzle pieces? You're looking at a puzzle piece and say, this doesn't make sense. God's looking at the big picture, He's looking at the big picture. And so, Joseph believed that God could use mistreatment to accomplish his purposes, his glory. That's not a message you're going to hear from the unbelievers because they could never understand it, but it's true. And so we live in a sinful world, and only God's grace and God's mercy and God's power and God's salvation can bring true and lasting change to my heart and life and to America and to the world. And so may I just say, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today's the day. Today's the day to turn to Christ and to be saved. If you are struggling with something in your past or something in your present, you need Bible theology. You need to believe that God is using these trials to grow your faith. How did Peter say it? After you have suffered a while, I'm going to make you strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the power of it, what it means to us. Thank you for Joseph and the example that he is to us by his life. Now, Lord, we all, we all are going through different and varying degrees of trials and suffering and mistreatment and misunderstanding. But God, help us to see you in the midst of it. 
Though we cannot control what others do to us or say to us, we can believe that you can use it for your glory. And now I pray for our church family, both here and those watching at home and those who will watch in the future, that we can look at the life of Joseph, we can look at him in a mirror, and we can see ourselves. And may we model his faith, may we model his theology that we believe you are in control of all circumstances. And may we not allow these little sins to come into our heart because we know that it will make a big problem, not just in our life, but in the lives of others. And now, if you're at home or here in this auditorium and you're not sure that heaven's your home, would you call upon Jesus to become your Savior? Big picture, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Big picture, Jesus died for your sins. Big picture, Jesus victoriously rose again to give you eternal life. Receive it. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and save me today. Now, Christian, would you pray with me? If there's a struggle in your life with a family member, with a friend, with a coworker, uh, would you allow your faith to grow to the place where you can see that God has allowed it. He didn't cause the offense. He didn't cause the situation, but he has allowed it for your good, for his glory. And would you pray for wisdom, asking God to help you to understand why you're in this situation, why you're in this suffering, and then find grace and mercy. Call to the Lord, pray to him, and he'll give help in time of need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be looking in Luke chapter 19. So in your living room or home office, wherever you're at, just open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to spend some time in, in God's Word. We are, uh, we're, we're so thrilled that this time of um, social distancing as a church by way of not meeting together, it's almost over, and we're ready to get back together and though it'll take a while for things to get back to normal, at least for meeting together. And, uh, and the sooner we can get back to a normal schedule, I'm sure the sooner all of us will enjoy that. And, uh, but God's Word has been going forth from the pulpit here uh, th throughout the entire COVID ordeal. And uh, we've seen people saved. We've seen some lives changed. People that want to join the church, God is still doing a work. He's not limited to the normal. In fact, when things go abnormal, it's at times easier to see God work. And I want us to look at a, a message from Luke chapter 19 that, will, uh, that can impact us this week. It can help us this week. There's absolutely no question about the fact that we're living in troublesome times. The pandemic, economic upheaval, or stress, or reversal. For some, riots, national monuments being assaulted, and more anger going around than any country needs. An anger Pastor Wendell was commenting on this morning. 
That is the day in which we live. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus Christ when he said, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He is completely in control. He has overcome any and every situation. And he tells us, let's be of good cheer. People, but people are experiencing um, feelings of loss. And we all have experienced some loss during these times on multiple levels. Loss of job for some or schooling. Loss of peace for many. Some have even lost loved ones that have succumbed to COVID-19. Loss of normal ministry opportunities and loss of normalcy in life. Loss just happens in a fallen world. That's the way life is. And we're experiencing that and we see that around us. Whether we are greatly affected personally or not, we see the loss that others are experiencing. And tonight I want us to look at a segment of life right out of the disciples' experience with Jesus. And they are right on the cusp of tremendous loss. Now, they don't know it yet, but they're going to know it in a few short days. We're one week out. This passage is one week out from Good Friday when Jesus was crucified. It's going to be a time of stress and struggle for these disciples like they've not known before. Jesus gives instructions to his disciples in the passage we're going to look at to prepare them for the loss that they're going to experience and to direct them and perhaps even to motivate them. And it's instruction that's not only for them, it is instruction for us as well. You're going to see that clearly as we work through the scriptures. So I want you to be prepared to let your fingers do the walking because we're going to look at an, a number of passages tonight. So let's start in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. I'm going to read a parable to you that uh, Jesus spoke for a very specific reason, and he even told us the reason he spoke it. It says in verse 12, Luke 19, 12, And he said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, after received the kingdom, then he commanded his servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, 
Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto everyone that hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. It really helps to understand the Gospels if you can grasp the experience that the disciples were having, if you can recreate their experience. Where are they at? Where have they been? Where are they going? Which direction are they traveling? Who are they traveling with? Where's Jesus? What's Jesus doing? And what is Jesus saying? All of these questions, you try to put these pieces of a puzzle together to recreate the experience the best that we can of, of what the disciples were going through. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to follow Jesus on his Samaria, Galilee, Perea circuit, is what I'll call it. We're going to have a slide put up on the screen for you. And this is the circuit, starting at Jerusalem. It loops to the north, turns east, and then turns south again. That is the Samaria, Galilee, Perea circuit. And that is the last circuit that Jesus Christ made in his earthly ministry. It took him a few weeks to make that. But that is where he traveled. The, he, he had been in Jerusalem where he started this circuit. And he had been in Bethany. You'll see Bethany just to the east of Jerusalem. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that created quite a commotion. And people were flooding out of Jerusalem to Bethany to see this man that had been dead and is alive, and Jesus made him alive. So they wanted to see for themselves a, a dead man made alive. And because of Lazarus, many people were coming to faith in Christ. This has to be the Messiah. He has to be the Son of God. And multitudes were starting to follow him, and the leaders at Jerusalem could not allow that. Uh, that, this is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for them. They put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest. They wanted to get Jesus as soon as they could because the longer this went on, the worse it was going to be for them. And not only did they want to apprehend Jesus, they also talked about getting rid of Lazarus. They thought they would kill Lazarus because it was because of Lazarus that many people were coming to faith in Christ when they saw the dead man raised back to life. It was kind of a uh, destroy the evidence effort by these leaders. That was what they anticipated and attempted to do. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem. It's just too politically hot. He's not ready to die yet. So he leaves Jerusalem and he travels due north. And as he goes north, through Samaria and up into the lower part of Galilee. He then turns east, crosses the Jordan River, over into Perea, another province, and then heads south through Perea, all the way down to Jericho, where the passage that I read took place in Jericho, and then he marches up to Jerusalem to die. The Gospels mention several events and teachings that happened during this circuit. And I put it there on the map for you. Ten lepers were healed. 
Jesus gave a parable about a persistent widow who needed an unjust judge to intercede for her. Jesus gave another parable about a Pharisee and a publican, and they come to God and they pray, and the Pharisee's filled with pride, and the publican says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and the publican goes down justified rather than the Pharisee. Jesus gave that parable. He taught on divorce. As he moves from Galilee over into Perea, he just moved over into Herod Antipas's territory. Herod was the ruler of Perea, Herod Antipas, the one that beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist said, you can't divorce your wife and marry this other woman. Now Jesus gets into Herod Antipas's territory and right away somebody asked Jesus about divorce. That probably wasn't an honest inquiry. That was probably a setup to try to get Jesus in trouble with King Herod. But Jesus answers the question, he then uses little children to teach about the true nature of the kingdom of God, gathers them around him. There's a young man, a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus Christ wanting to know how to have eternal life. And Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler, but he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give up his possessions to take Jesus and follow Jesus and his words. He gets down to Jericho and he finds a blind man, blind Bartimaeus, and he heals him of his blindness, and Bartimaeus trusts Christ and starts to follow him. And then just as he leaves Jericho, he comes across a man by the name of Zacchaeus who happened to be in a sycamore tree. And he goes home with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus trusts Christ. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, of Zacchaeus, that this day salvation has come to thy house, for he also is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is what's happening right now in Jesus' life leading up to this parable of the, of the pounds. What's the purpose of a parable? A parable, as Jesus used them, was to teach a is to teach a, a moral truth, a spiritual truth. The parable that we're going to look at, the, the parable of the, the pounds, is this parable teaching reward for faithfulness? Well, it certainly does imply that. It does teach that. But that's not the purpose of this parable. The Bible does tell us what the purpose is. And if you look with me in chapter 19, Let's go back to verse 10. He's in Zacchaeus' house, and he said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added. So he's still there. He's in Zacchaeus' house. And he added this. And he spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem. And if you look at the map, Jericho is it's only 15 miles from Jerusalem. He's nigh to Jerusalem. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. The people were expecting the kingdom of God to appear. And because that expectation was there, Jesus gave a parable to teach that that's not going to be what happens. The kingdom is not going to immediately appear. In fact, it's going to be postponed. 
It's going to be postponed for 2,000 years at least. This physical, earthly kingdom of God that was promised to Israel, which is the kingdom that they were thinking of, was about to be postponed. And rather than receiving the glorious kingdom, which they were thinking was going to appear immediately, they're not going to have glorious kingdom. They're going to lose the glorious king. He is going to be leaving them. Jesus, throughout his ministry, and John the Baptist throughout his ministry, they preached this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message, and they healed the sick, and they performed miracles, and they drew attention to the message, but the message was to repent because God's kingdom is near. That was the public message. But as the ministry of Jesus Christ wore on, he started to take the disciples aside, apart, and he would speak of his coming death. I want you to keep your finger here, but go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And I want us to see what, how the disciples received this message, this message that Jesus is now starting to proclaim. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And the scripture says this, And they departed thence, and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples, and he said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now look in verse 32. But they understood not that saying. It didn't make sense to him them. They couldn't comprehend it. And they were afraid to ask for some clarification. So they went on with this bewilderment and, and not having that straightened out in their thinking. Now go over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. Got to let your fingers do the walking. And we're going to jump around in these scriptures to try to recreate really the scene that these disciples are in when Jesus gave the parable of the pound. Luke, in Luke chapter 9 verse 43. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Don't you like the way that the, the, the Scripture says that? Let the things that I'm saying sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, and they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. To the multitudes, Jesus had preached, the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. But toward the end of his ministry, he took the disciples aside, and he started teaching them that his death was near, and his resurrection to follow. Somewhere... Somewhere in this last circuit, as he traveled from Jerusalem up through Samaria and Galilee and back down through Perea to Jericho, somewhere in that loop, Jesus was confronted with his enemies, by his enemies, and they had a question. And I want you to go to Luke 17. Now we're getting close to this time of Jericho. Luke chapter 17. Now look what happened here. Verse 20. 
And when he, Jesus, was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now here's the Pharisees' question. Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? They wanted a kingdom, but they wanted a kingdom of their own making. They wanted a kingdom that was visible, that was outward, that was earthly, and that was almost exclusively Jewish. They wanted that kingdom. That was their understanding from the Old Testament. And they were anxious for it, even anxious enough, well, they're going to see what Jesus has to say about it. And so they asked Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus gives them an answer. He said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. In other words, you won't see it. It's invisible. It is not physical. When it comes, you, as it comes, you won't see it. Since it's invisible, people won't be saying, here it is, look, look, here, or look, it's over there, there's the kingdom. They can't do that because the kingdom of God is invisible. Why is it invisible? There are no loud proclamations. There's no marching army. There's no prancing horses or martial music. There's no outward show with pomp and circumstance. When the kingdom comes like that, everybody would see it, but that's not how the kingdom of God is coming. And then he says, the kingdom of God is within you. It's internal. It is spiritual. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom wherein people receive the king by being born again and they become part of the kingdom that he is building. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual relationship with the king. That's Jesus' kingdom. And the kingdom of God will be a physical kingdom when he brings it in the future. And the saved of the ages will sit on thrones and they will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And Revelation 20 and verse 4 says, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Where are they at? They're sitting on thrones. Jesus will establish a physical kingdom. But he was presenting a spiritual kingdom, inviting people into this relationship. The Pharisees and Christ's disciples were both anticipating a physical, earthly kingdom to be set up. The Pharisees expected this kingdom to be set up by, by the Messiah, not Jesus. But the disciples expected this kingdom to be set up by Jesus, who they believed and were convinced was the Messiah. The disciples had the right idea. Uh, they just had the wrong timing. It's coming, but it's coming in the future. So after Jesus answered the Pharisees about the kingdom of God, he then, in, in chapter 17, Luke 17, verse 22, he takes his disciples aside. Now he's going to give them some more teaching. And he said unto his disciples, verse 22, Luke 17, 22, the days will come 
when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth to the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So here's what Jesus told his disciples. The kingdom of God, well, I'm going away and you're going to, there, there will be a day that you long to see me, that you long to be with me as you have known me. Believers will long for the second coming and the kingdom that the king brings. The disciples expected it in their lifetime. We long for it now. Don't you long for Jesus Christ to come back? I mean, we're looking for that. Now, we call it the rapture, which is seven years before the official second coming, but we long to see Jesus return. The tribulation saints, they're really going to long for Jesus to turn, return during the tribulation period. You know, even the saints that are in heaven, they long for Jesus Christ to come back, and Revelation chapter 6 tells us that. They want to know when Jesus is coming back to earth to make things right. Jesus told his disciples that there will be false Christ that will show up and say this way and that way, and I, as though they had some secret way into the kingdom, but the instruction was not to follow them. When the kingdom of God comes with the second coming of Jesus Christ, you will know it, Jesus said. It's going to be like lightning that flashes across the sky from one side to the other of the sky. You will see it flash. You, you can't miss it when it comes. When Jesus brings the kingdom, you're not going to miss it, believer. That's the teaching of the passage. But before this happens, he said he has to suffer. He has to be rejected of that current generation, which he was. Now, folks, this is the stuff that the disciples are discussing in this loop as they get down to Jericho. This is the conversations that they are having. They're having it with Jesus. They're having it with the Pharisees. They're wanting to know when is the kingdom of God going to be set up, and it's so much a part of their conversation. And after Jesus deals with Zacchaeus, he adds this comment. He adds a parable, and he says he gave that parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So here's the purpose for the parable of the pounds. Jesus wants to dampen their expectation that the kingdom is ready to come. Oh, that's a dangerous... That, that could be a dangerous expect, expectation as he gets to Jerusalem... That would, that, that would be like a flash that would flame up into a rebellion against the government if they tried to forcibly make Jesus the king. So he, he dampens it down, and then he gives a parable. And this parable of the pounds is for the disciples. But you have to understand this, Christian. This parable of the pounds is for us. It's for us, too. 
and you'll see why. Here's a summary of the parable. A nobleman is being given a kingdom and he's got to travel to a far country to receive the kingdom. He calls his ten servants together, gives each one of them a pound, says, trade with this until I come. He leaves to go get his country, and when he does, citizens of the country, they, they pipe up and they say, we don't want this man to be our ruler. But he comes back with the kingdom. And when he gets back with the kingdom, he calls his servants together, and he's, he wants an accounting. What did you do with the money that I put in your hand? And so they start giving their account. One guy took his pound, he made 10 pounds. Another guy took his pound, he made five pounds. They are commended for the work that they did. A third one comes, he took his pound and he hid it in a napkin because he was afraid of the nobleman. And he is, he is scolded for what he did. And then the uh, nobleman wants the citizens that did not want him to rule over them, and he has them slain. So what's the parable mean? Why is Jesus, what's he trying to say right here before he goes up to Jerusalem by giving this parable to the disciples? You know, parables have a central truth that they teach. When you read a parable, not every single element of the parable has a special meaning. The parables weren't designed that way. It was to, to give a basic truth. And as you read the parable, it becomes pretty obvious what this basic truth is. The nobleman in, in this parable is Jesus Christ. He's going to go away to a far country. Oh, by the way, this parable really is Jesus' program. This, he's kind of laying out what's going to happen. He's going to go away to a far country. Now, we know that's heaven. He's going to get a kingdom, and he's going to bring it back, and there's going to be an accounting time when he gets back with his kingdom that he sets up here on this earth. I want us to pause for just a minute, and I want us to catch a, a very short but important history lesson. Now, now look at your map. Look, look at the map. You will see that, that this is happening down in Jericho. The location is important. Here's a little bit of a diversion on a, on a short history lesson. Jesus was born during the days of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, they tried to kill Jesus as a baby by slaughtering all the infants in Bethlehem. Jesus was taken down into Egypt and, uh, uh, and did not die in that slaughter. Herod the Great is on his deathbed, and now he changes his will, and he makes his son Archelaus the next king in his stead. Instead of Herod Antipas, who was the elder son, Herod Antipas was going to be the successor to Herod the Great, but on the deathbed, he changed it and he made it Archelaus. As soon as Herod died, Archelaus immediately got on a boat and he sailed to Rome because he had to have Caesar Augustus, the Roman Caesar, confirm the appointment of him being the king of the Jews. So he has gone back to Rome to get his kingdom. The Jews sent an embassy to Caesar Augustus. We don't want this man, Archelaus, to rule over us. Herod Antipas also went to Caesar Augustus at the same time to make his case why he should be the legitimate king 
and Herod the Great's place according to Herod's second will, not his third will. Archelaus had, get it, had given instructions to his servants to look after his financial interests while he was gone, and he promised he would reward them with cities when he came back. Augustus ruled on the matter and didn't give the kingdom to any one individual, but he, he divided it among the three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, so they each got a part of Herod's kingdom, but none of them got the title of king. Archelaus was such a ruthless ruler that Caesar Augustus had to depose him and then put a governor in place in Judea to govern the part of the kingdom that uh, Archelaus had gotten. And that's why Pontius Pilate was a governor when Jesus was crucified during his days. That is the historical setting. That's what happened. That happened when Jesus was 10 years old. And now, now Jesus is down in Jericho and he crafts a parable that is so tightly tied to what happened historically. So let's go to the next slide, if we have that. You will see in this slide, Old Jericho in the north, Herodian Jericho, or New Jericho. Now, according to the scripture in Luke chapter 19, it says in verse 1, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. He's talking about the Herodian Jericho, the, the second one, the new Jericho. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. So Jesus is just on the southern outskirts of uh, Herodian Jericho when he encounters Zacchaeus, goes home to his house. Now, I want, you to, I want you to follow the road from Herodian Jericho and go west, which would be going off to your, to your left, and you see it says road to Jerusalem, and then you see the word palaces. Archelaus's palaces were there. The people in this area knew Archelaus and knew his palaces. Now, he's not the king, or he's not the ruler at this time. He's been deposed. But when Jesus starts talking about a king, goes to a far country, receives a kingdom, comes back, he's right in the territory where Archelaus had his palaces. The people would have known him. The people knew what happened. So there's a historical similarity to, to Jesus' parable. Now back to the parable. He gives, Jesus is the nobleman, and he's going to go away, and he gives pounds to his servants. And then he comes back with his kingdom, and he is coming back. And he has an accounting with them. And there's going to be some faithful servants, there's going to be some unfaithful servants, and there's going to be some outright rebels in this. I'm going to give some truths about the parable of the pounds, some truths that we can learn from this. And number one is this. We should wait expectantly for the king to come back. In the parable, Luke 19, 15 says, and when he was returned, he went to a far country, implying a long ways away, a long time, but he's going to come back, and he comes back. That is, in the parable, that is Jesus Christ coming back, having received his kingdom. The Lord is going to come back. You know, five days after Jesus spoke this parable, he told the disciples to lift up their heads, their redemption draweth nigh. Seven days after Jesus gave this parable, 
He said to the disciples, if I go away, I will come again. Jesus Christ is coming back. The king is coming. That is a surety. We know he is coming. Number two, though Jesus went away as a risen savior, he is coming back as a reigning sovereign. He's coming back as a king, and he's bringing the kingdom with him. The king is coming. We sing that song. The king is coming. We need a patient and anticipatory waiting for this king to come back because he is coming back. And when he comes back, righteousness will prevail. Now, folks, this is so comforting to my heart. Righteousness is going to prevail throughout the world and certainly in our country. Wickedness is not going to go unpunished. Every wrong will be made right. Satan does not win. Evil does not win. Truth wins. Peace wins. There's a glorious future ahead of us on the horizon. As the king comes back, he brings a kingdom with him, and we're going to rule and reign with him, and it will be a reign of righteousness, the scripture says. One thing this year, 2020, has taught me is this. The settling influence of the scriptures in my life. I've witnessed multiple times to vendors that service Valley Forge Baptist Temple. And I've been out to lunch a couple of times with one of our vendors. And weeks ago, several weeks ago, uh, and I've given him the plan of salvation twice. Several weeks ago, he called me as this rioting, the riot started, and he just was watching what's happening in America. And he called me, and he was so distraught over it all. This isn't the America that he knew. He's a good man, a family man, a hardworking man, loves his wife, loves his kids, works hard to provide for, for them. Distraught over what's happening in America. You know what he needs? He needs a Savior. He needs to know the Scripture because there's a settling influence that the Scriptures have on our life when we know that the king that has gone away is coming back, and, and we wait for him to come back, but when he gets back, he brings a kingdom that he sets up, and it's a reign of righteousness, and every wrong will be made right. There's a lot of comfort in that, folks. We sense the comfort as we have the Scripture. Jesus said that in his absence, we're to occupy till I come. Persistent working till Jesus Christ returns. This is the singular instruction in this parable. Occupy till I come. And that means to busy oneself with, to be occupied with, to be busy doing what the nobleman, in this case Jesus, left his servants to do in his absence. So Jesus, as the nobleman, goes to a far country to get a kingdom that he's going to bring, and he, he puts talents, pounds, he puts pounds in our hands, and he says, occupy till I come. And he's coming back. And we work, and we wait patiently for him to come back, and we wait 
with anticipation for him to come back. And while we're waiting, we're not lazy. We work. We work for him. The things that he's put in our hands, we use. And so there's three responses that the nobleman saw and the people that he left behind. There's the faithful obedience of the true followers. They use the resources God has given them. And I would say God has given us resources. He's put, may not be money, but he's put in our hands opportunities and resources for us to invest and use. In the parable, they just had to duplicate it through trading. That, that could be through uh, gaining interest. That could be buying and selling for a profit. Didn't matter, but they were to use what the nobleman put in their hands and they were to multiply it. And the ten servants did it. Three of them were told about. Two of them were successful. And one was not. One did not fulfill the job to occupy. The servants were given the same amount. They were each given a pound. And when the accounting day comes, one servant came and said, uh, thy pound has gained ten pounds. And the Lord said, well, thou good servant, be thou over ten cities. And the other servant came and said, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, well, thou good servant, be thou over five cities. You know, we shouldn't compare ourselves with each other and with the opportunities and the talents and abilities. and That, that goes nowhere good. The Lord has given each of us something. And he says, occupy till I come. And it, it, and it doesn't matter what the results are. What matters is that we're faithful to occupy while he's not here. And when he gets here, he will reward the way he wants to reward. And, and he's not going to come back. Jesus isn't going to come back and say, why didn't you make 10 pounds like so-and-so did? Why did you only make five pounds? Why can't you preach like so-and-so? Why can't you teach like so-and-so? Why can't you give like so-and-so? How come you don't? That's not the way our Lord is. He, he, if we're faithful, he blesses the faithfulness, the results are up to him, and he just says, well, thou good servant. And then he rewards the way he wants to reward. You have the faithful servant. You had the unfaithful, disobedient servant that hid his pound. He did not occupy as he should have. It's a basic principle of the Christian life that wasted opportunity means loss of reward and possibly loss of privilege of service. Don't waste our opportunities. Don't waste the things that God's put in our hands. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It is always so the gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness, while the unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. Why was the unfaithful man unfaithful? He didn't know his Lord. He didn't trust his Lord. He saw him as, a, as an austere man. Now, there is a proper fear of the Lord 
as a deterrent from sinning. But we shouldn't fear serving the Lord. We don't understand Him if we fear serving Him because He wants to bless. He, he wants to say, well done. He's a loving Lord, not an austere, harsh Lord. You had the faithful ones that obeyed. You had the unfaithful one that just hid and he didn't, he didn't occupy. And then you have those that are just out and out rebel, rebel, in rebellion against the Lord. These are the citizens in verse 14 that said, we don't want this man to rule over us. These are the enemies in verse 27 where Jesus said, bring them and slay them. Now, doesn't that sound harsh that Jesus would say to, of his enemies, slay them? I don't think it's harsh at all. God is not the enemy of mankind. Man made himself the enemy of God. God did not ruin our perfect environment. We ruined God's perfect environment. God did not sin against us. We sinned against God. God did not disappoint Adam. Adam disappointed God. From every angle you look at it, the problem is not God. The problem is man. God is loving and he's gentle and he's long-suffering. But eventually there has to be a separation and he will cut off those that say, I don't want this man to rule over us. God will hold them to that. His patience will run out. And he will deal with the lost mankind as his enemy eventually. Not all of mankind, but those that have rejected him. And I'd say lastly and in closing, know the day in which you are living. Know the day that we're living in. In this parable, we are in chapter 19 between verses 14 and 15. Now look at it. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. They don't want Jesus to reign over them. They don't want him as Lord. They don't love him as Lord. They don't even believe he's the Lord. There are people that don't want Jesus. Verse 15. And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded his servants to be called to him to whom he had given money that he might know how every man had gained by trading. He hasn't come back yet. So we're between verses 14 and 15. But one day he is coming back. And when he comes back, he wants to bless and he wants to reward according to our effort to occupy till he comes. Our master will return. He will return and bring a kingdom. When he returns, he will find faithful servants and unfaithful servants, and he'll find people that are out and out in rebellion against him. And we are living in the day, in the parenthesis, from the time that people were saying, I don't want him to rule over us, and when he comes back and he rules with a rod of iron. He's going to return, and when he does... The singular task that he has given us, occupy till I come, is what he wants to bless us for. Do the business of the king, folks. Do the business of the king. 
whatever he has specifically given you to do. Do it. Do it faithfully. I would say be a 10-pounder. But if he hasn't given you that ability, be a 5-pounder. But if that's not the giftedness he gave you, be a 2-pounder. Well, whatever he's given you, whatever he's placed in your hands, however, however he's created you, take that and use it faithfully for him and just keep on occupying till he comes. And when he comes, if we've been faithful, what he will say is, well, thou good servant. And he'll reward us accordingly. We have a week this week to serve him. Let's live this week with an anticipation. Let's wait on his coming with an anticipation that he's coming back soon. And while we're waiting, let's work. Let's occupy. Let's do what he's left us here to do. This is important business of the king. There's going to be a reward day one day. And we certainly want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, your word is precious to us. It helps us during days that are days of struggle. God, I pray that you would help us to keep spiritual eyes focused on your word and focused on you and to wait with great anticipation that you are coming back and you're coming back soon and you're coming back to make all things right. And as we are waiting with anticipation, Lord, I pray that each of us would occupy, that we would work, that we would use what you've given us and we'd use it to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name.